Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. I suspect that Dr. Nina Ortiz often surprises people. Nina is remarkably friendly and chatty, has an irrepressible smile, often laughs, and is unfailingly cheerful. But she's also one of the scrappiest people that I know. Professionally, Nina is an anthropologist and an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Morris, but she's also a fierce champion of immigrant rights, and has throughout her career acted as a community organizer, advocate, and change maker. She works to ensure that ag and food processing plant workers, as well as their families, all of whom are likely to be relatively newly arrived immigrants to the United States, are treated fairly in both their workplaces and communities. So my name is Christina Ortiz. Uh, everyone calls me Nina. <laughs> so you can also call me Nina if you want to. <laughs> um, uh, I am a cultural anthropologist, uh, but I come to cultural anthropology by way of Spanish literature and a little bit of ed background. Um, yeah. And I... I'm part Latina, and so part of my commitment in higher ed is also a personal commitment. Um, I sort of see myself and my background reflected in important ways in the kinds of things that I try to do and uh, sort of in how I stay grounded in my job. And I remember... You know, that my grandparents would have no idea what my job really entails <laughs> and trying to be able to explain it to them and, and make it do my job teaching community involvement in a way that honors their uh, the things that they did to help get me here oh. um, is really important to to how I see what I do. My dissertation research was in a meatpacking community in southeast Iowa. Um, So that community was a rural town that had, well, when I moved there, it had almost 50% Latinos and the other 50% supposedly was Anglos. But within about six months of my arrival there, somehow the population stayed the same and they got about between three and 500 Chin Burmese uh, immigrants arrived. <laughs> so it was kind of an anthropologist's dream. Um, and I had to learn a lot really quickly about what it's like to live in a rural community with really quickly changing language and social dynamics. Um, and my purpose, I spoke Spanish, but I did not speak Chin. <laughs> and so my purpose going there was to kind of look at how does a rural town construct itself and think about itself in the context of a meatpacking economy, um, and what does that mean for the social life of the people in the community, and how? What are their struggles? What are their triumphs? Um, and so, I really learned a lot by by living there. I taught GED classes and bilingual, um, well, bilingual G- GED and uh, English to speakers of other languages, <laughs> and that was really fun. And I also learned a lot about people and their jobs and how that impacts their lives. So like when I taught computer skills, it turned out that a good portion of the class couldn't use a mouse because their um, 
their fine motor skills had been destroyed by some of the types of jobs they did in the meatpacking plant. And that was not something that I had really thought through at all when I made the lesson plan. Um, and so I thinking about things like that have really impacted me. Now I live here in Morris um, and we don't have a meatpacking plant here, <laughs> um, but we do have a lot of industrial agriculture and a lot of a growing Latino population that works um, in a variety of different fields, but including um at local dairies and uh, farm hog farms around the area. Um, and so many of the issues are very similar in terms of like immigration issues and language access and understanding what kinds of resources are available and how to access them in rural spaces. Uh, because in rural communities, we don't have the kind of built-in support that a history of, of existing immigration can provide sometimes for community members who are newly arrived. Listening to Nina talk about her research, let me ask her about how she ensures that her work is serving and is formed by the needs of the communities that she partners with. During the ensuing conversation, I learned a ton of strategies for looking past one's own perspectives, building relationships, asking questions, and listening. So one of the things that I ask, so I involve undergraduate students a lot in the mm -hmm. research that I do here in Morris, and uh, one of the things that I have sort of just as a a baseline for myself have insisted be the case is that whenever we do some kind of service learning project that the need has been uh, identified first uh -huh. rather than us inventing the need or or right. sort of identifying it from our end that we have worked with community partners and people who know the community well enough to say yeah this is probably something that would be beneficial um and I, because it's a small community and particularly the group of marginalized people is extraordinarily small, um, I have sort of insisted for myself that we not do things like you can in a big city, like send students out to interview newly arrived immigrants or people who are new to the community because that doesn't really do very much for them. Um, and it can really quickly tax our local population and, and mm -hmm. um, sort of not be respectful of their labor. And so I've insisted that if we're going to go talk to community members, that we have some sort of purpose in mind and that there be a relatively tangible outcome uh, that will benefit them, whether that's compensating people for their time or whether that's um, a plan to use the data to help the school do things differently or a community service provider do things better or answer a question that they want to know. Um, and that if we don't have that sort of outcome or exchange or collaboration type of thing in mind, that we rethink it so that it is uh, respectful and useful in the community because uh, it's very easy to sort of have uh, – undergraduate students in particular who don't really know very much try to go discover things and uh it's kind of a I guess a colonial type of mindset right and right. It, it really tends to benefit the students most and primarily um and so I really have tried to be thoughtful about the way that we do data gathering and think about what are the benefits and outcomes not just for our students but for the community in general. And I think that's been really a good thing for students to have to think about as well. Right. So how, how do you approach that? So, um, right. It seems to be one of those, <laughs> difficult, you have to know about the community right. to, to know about the needs, <laughs> but then you have to know about the needs. So, right. Like, right. So, so how do you overcome that? So right. When you first mm -hmm. came to Morris before you knew the, uh, cause I mean, now I think mm -hmm. you're, you're, I, I think you're in some ways a member of that community. Mm -hmm. right? you, yeah. Uh, but when you first got here, mm -hmm. before you knew folks, how did you mm -hmm. set about that? Right. 
making sure that you were actually responding to an existing mm-hmm. need. Yeah. Um, so I worked with people who had lived here right. um, and I talked to people who kind of knew the situation a little bit, uh, but I also tried not to overdo it, I guess, sure. <laughs> at the beginning. So when we were asking questions, uh, I wanted to make sure that whatever kinds of questions we asked were not just of interest to me, mm-hmm. but they were also of interest to our community partners. So when I first came to Morris, that community partner was mostly the school. Mm. Um, and so we talked, instead of talking to Latino people, in some cases, my students, partly because they didn't have the language skills to talk in Spanish to uh, people who didn't speak English very well. Um, I asked them to talk to community members who had other stakes in the community. So teachers, school mm-hmm. personnel, and asked them what, if anything, they knew about the Latino community and sort of began to triangulate who knows what from that perspective and then figure out like, so for example, we had um, some teachers who said, Oh, you know, I would really love to take a Spanish class and learn to speak, you know, better Spanish and be able to talk to the parents of my students a little more. And even just to say, you know, basic stuff like hello and whatever. And it turns out that at the time there was such a resource available for them. They were already offering classes for the community. And so we were like, okay, so what we need is not more classes. What we need is better PR for the resources that do exist. Um, And so trying to figure out how to ask those questions in a way that would get a lot of information for us, but not sort of not overburden our participants in the sense that we like keep coming back to them with the same questions. And so trying to get that baseline information, but also in a way that would turn out to hopefully be useful. So how do you avoid overburning? Great. Because I Mm -hmm. I think that's often a concern. And I think sometimes, so in my experience, I find sometimes people, uh, their response is the wrong one, right? Which Mm -hmm. is just, let's not ask folks. Right. Which is, you know, that's not the right way to do it. Like, If you're concerned about people's burden, silencing them isn't the right sort of approach. So how do you, right? So how do you balance that, that, right? Need to Mm -hmm. actually involve folks in robust ways with not overburdening them. Yeah. So one of the things that I often ask students to do is just go to places in the community that they have never been. Uh, sometimes we do that through field trips. So we've asked like a local dairy to give us a tour of their dairy, which mm-hmm. they do for lots of different community groups. It's a just kind of an outreach thing that they do. Yeah. Um, but also just to go to places in the community that they have literally never been, even though it's a really small community. So yeah. like walk down the downtown and do a map of a block and right. see of that block how many places do you already know exist? And of those places, where have you never set foot in before? And um, kind of get to know the community in that way. um, Because then you can kind of get a different sense of what it looks like from someone else's perspective, like literally an outsider's perspective and see who, who are you noticing where, what kinds of representation, what kinds of social interactions are happening in these spaces, all of which tell you lots of really important things about what's going on in a community Mm -hmm. without having to talk to people like necessarily directly or bother them with asking them questions or things like that. Sort of, um, sort of just kind of getting a sense of, of what's happening in the community from a sense that is beyond meeting their own needs, right? So they've right. been to places in the community that meet their own needs. But what if you had to do something else? Talking about understanding one another, despite cultural differences, let me to go on a long and rambly rant about the human tendency to believe that one's own values and perspectives are objectively the correct ones. Uh, I decided to cut that out because I don't think it adds much, 
But my rat did prompt Nina to offer an insightful example in response, which I'll play now. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and one of my favorite things that uh, I didn't even do it, one of the yeah. other researchers on our team did originally was ask parents and students, children, to um, draw their ideal school. Right. It was really interesting because every single Latino person who drew their ideal school included a soccer field. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which at the time we did not have. Um, and there are now three soccer fields that yeah. get used on a regular basis when the weather is appropriate. Um, and that the use of that space shifted in part primarily based on that very fun sort of mm -hmm. light activity that asked community members to draw their ideal school. Yeah. And I think that kind of thing has been really great. Um, because community members then also could sort of come around uh, or become aware of a shared interest or value um, that they didn't have to wait for somebody else to kind of be like, oh, let's do this. They were okay. like, well, we would like to play soccer. Who can we talk to? And as a research team, we kind of knew the answer to that question. And we could say, you should go talk to this person. Right. And they could go do that. And that provided a shift in the community that we didn't really plan or need to you know, have deep research or theoretical feelings about. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. It was just an immediate, obvious need mm -hmm. and identifying it. And, it, and, and because we were kind of talking to a broad array of people in the community, we were able to connect people. We didn't even need to do anything. They kind mm -hmm. of took care of it themselves once they knew who to direct themselves to right. um, and had somebody you know, that could facilitate communication. Now, like I interpreted for mm. one single meeting and then people who were bilingual or nearly bilingual kind of took, took the helm yeah. and were able to arrange everything for the community. Thinking about what she said in regards to navigating differences in cultural assumptions and perspectives, asked Nina how she defined equity. That led us to a discussion about helping folks see the connections between political, economic, and social systems in everyone's day-to-day -day lives. We also talked about how it's important to think about one's place in society and how that place affects one's relationships with others. Here's that conversation. So one of the things that is very important, has become very important to me as I learned more about equity and, and how, how it can work is because I'm an anthropologist thinking about helping people see the connections between their everyday lives and their sort of daily struggles and triumphs and bigger systems and processes. Mm -hmm. um, so in a classroom, for me, that often looks like being very explicit about what we're doing, why we're doing it, how the university works, why a credit is worth, how much it's worth, right? Mm -hmm. Explaining all those things that, uh, especially first-generation students, but also just regular old mm -hmm. <laughs> students aren't necessarily aware of, right? Like, what does it mean to have tenure as a professor? Right. Like, I'm pretty sure I didn't know what that meant until I was almost done with graduate school. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just had no idea and I had right. no co context within which to understand it. And so just explaining how the system works mm -hmm. is really important and I think promotes the inclusion of people who would otherwise be like, I don't know what that is. Let me not even mm -hmm. pay attention to it. Um, That's interesting because yeah. uh, I mean, I think I think about it in a lot of the same ways, right? Because uh, the theory I tend to use when I'm thinking about equity and inclusion is uh, consent, particularly right. from biomedical ethics. Right. And thinking through like what <laughs> what are doctors required to do right. to ensure that 
patients are adequate, like appropriately mm-hmm. involved in decision making, <laughs> or like right, researchers and right. research participants in like biomedical research, mm-hmm. and the yeah, so like a lot of it is around um, comprehension and understanding, right? Right. So Absolutely. like making sure that your or disclosure and comprehension mm-hmm. and yeah. understanding. So thinking about like <laughs> the information you provide, and then giving people tools to understand that information so that they can make uh, a decision that's well-informed. Exactly. Exactly. And I see the research that I do, particularly also with undergraduates and teaching them how to kind of think about how to be respectful and not overburden a small community and its Mm -hmm. resources and people's time. I see that kind of similarly, right? Like teaching them how to deal with people is part of the life that they will live no matter which community they go into, whether they become an anthropologist or go into some other job. Mm -hmm. And so teaching them how to think critically about positioning themselves in relationship to other people and not just face-to-face, but again, thinking between themselves and these bigger scale systems, right? right? What does it mean that I represent a system as a white person or as a marginalized person or as, you know, whoever they might be? And like, what are the power dynamics involved in that? And, um, and we talk about that a lot, like in methods classes that I teach about, like, how is it different for me as the instructor mm-hmm. to go talk to a community partner than it is for a student to go talk to a community partner or a potential interviewee or something? And like, mm-hmm. how do you manage how people see you and um, be clear about what it is that you're doing? <laughs> because right. like, like students will tend to do things like, can I just send some, can I just email somebody these questions? Right, <laughs> like, right, right. right. <laughs> That's not really being respectful of their time or their energy, but also, you know, all these other, like, things about... Treating people as people. Right, exactly. So, it's come up in a lot of the interviews I've talked about, like, thinking about respect. And one thing that occurs to me is different people think about respect in different ways. Yes. Right, so a lot of the critiques I've heard of the academy is that Mm -hmm. we tend to be overly focused on productivity, efficiency, on time, (laughs) on, like, Mm -hmm. you know, minimizing resource use, uh, Mm -hmm. minimizing effort. And so we think of respectful as not wasting people's time. Right. Right. So we tend to think like if we're being respectful, we are being to the point. Mm-hmm. Right. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to use the fewest amount of words possible. We're right. going to take up the least amount of time for someone. Right. We're going to when we meet, we have an agenda and mm-hmm. we go through these steps and then we let people go. <laughs> right. Um, but that strikes, I think, a lot of people as being deeply like, unrespectful. Right? Absolutely. Because um, they interact to one another like. People. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> right, right, and not- authenticity, right, is is a really important part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge. Um, and it's something that I talk about with my students in relation to like Latino culture specifically sure. about like being respectful can look like making sure that you start off by talking about the weather and how people are doing and how people's children or parents or whatever are, right? Like that's a part of getting to know people. And mm-hmm. um, so like one of the things that I teach students to do is take stock of the context that they're in before they ever ask a question, right? So they should show up to an interview mm-hmm early. They should kind of scope out the space. They should um, sort of maybe even draw a little map for themselves, right? So that they're thinking about the context in which they're asking questions. Sure. Um, but also 
these kind of like cultural ideas, right? So like um, Americans will tend to like push a piece of paper across the table at you for you to sign. Right. And for a lot of Latinos, that is like deeply disrespectful. Okay. So say more about that. <laughs> so uh, in a lot of, for a lot of particularly middle class, upper class um, Mexicans in particular, they've actually commented right. here in Morris <laughs> about how disrespectful they think it is that people will push, Americans will push right. uh, papers across a table to them because for them, you're supposed to hand it to someone and it should tr the piece of paper should transfer from your hand directly to their hand right. in order to be a respectful interpersonal interaction right right rather than like you know having right yeah like i don't even want to come in contact <laughs> right with you. this this inter inter uh what is it impersonal right, right, right. right uh, uh mode um and it's something that I never even thought of, right. um, but that multiple people in the community commented to me about. And I was like, oh, wow, I guess I should stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I asked Nina about how we might get better at being aware of different cultural expectations. And Nina's answer echoed some of the things that came up in the conversation that I had with Fiola Jacobs. More specifically, Nina talked about the importance of humility, accepting and being open about the limits of one's knowledge, and attending to those around you. How does one become more culturally like aware and more competent in their interactions with folks coming from different backgrounds and being attentive to identify right, <laughs> those sort of things? I mean, I think it's impossible from the get-go to like, sure, oh, these are right. the things I need to know. But what Absolutely. are like just ways to attend better so that mm -hmm. one responds appropriately, one one present is presented with the feedback that like, right. you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. I would say one of the things that is, I think, hardest for me to do, but sure. most important is to not be defensive. Okay. To just be like, when somebody like corrects you or especially as academics, we're so bad at this because we always want to be right. Right. Um, and so just to kind of, when somebody's like, man, you kind of screwed that up, <laughs> kind of just take a deep breath and be like, instead of thinking about all the ways that you didn't screw it up, right, right. right kind of just be like, take it in and, right. and be like, in what ways could I have screwed that up? Um, but also to, as an anthropologist, one of my favorite things to do is people watch. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I ask students to do and beginner inclusive social justice -y types people is I say, just be present with other community members. You're mm -hmm. always going to mess up. Like, right, right. and just be willing to say, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I apologize. But also minimize the, the screwing up by watching what other people are doing. Right. Figure out who the role models are. Like, if you go to a community meeting, don't be the first one to pop up and say a thing. <laughs> you can kind of hang back and watch other people and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I always think about the the um what is that movie with julia roberts where she doesn't know which fork to use oh pretty woman yes <laughs> <laughs> so you will always have those moments where yeah. you don't know what the right thing to do is but one of the easiest ways to sort of overcome that besides just being a little bit self-deprecating and and you know realizing that you don't know what to do and being honest about it yeah. is watching other people and mm -hmm. seeing what they do and sometimes that's not a good measure <laughs> Because <laughs> there are things that happen where well, yeah. some people are supposed to do some things and some people are supposed to do other things. But right. it is a good a good entry point to to when you are engaging with people to just kind of watch how other people who are familiar with the space are doing things right. and kind of try to copy that and, and figure out why they're doing what they're doing. If it's not what you would have done, right. try to kind of 
think it through a little bit. Um, and I think one of the things that happens a lot in intercultural interactions is that people will go into a space and not know what to do and feel uncomfortable and immediately retreat. Right. <laughs> and I know just as a person who is kind of shy, that's like my that's my go to reaction is like, OK, I walked into this store and I don't recognize any of the products or any of the signage. Mm-hmm. I better leave. Right, right. And the, I think that's a really natural response. Ex- absolutely. But if you're a person who's trying to learn about a person or a community or a thing, that's the moment where the learning happens. And so if you can fight against that flight response and just kind of mm-hmm. take a breath and admit kind of like exposure therapy, right? Like right, right. Admit that you're embarrassed and that you don't know what to do and be okay with that. That's when the really cool learning stuff happens because then you're getting new information and learning new things and becoming comfortable with something that you weren't already comfortable with. Right. Now, I think it's an important lesson, right? Because I think for those of us who are, are academics, uh, at some point, you get used to being the person who knows the most in a room, right? Or like, at least, like you know, you at least maybe not the most, but you know, you get mm-hmm. used to knowing stuff, mm-hmm. and then having to be humble and recognizing mm-hmm. that wait, I have no idea what yes. I'm doing is often challenging. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's my whole job to do that in some cases, right. and I still am not totally okay with it all the time like I still have to coach myself through some of those rough moments um but it's some of the richest Mm -hmm. learning experiences that people in general can have and I think I know some students who've had the greatest of friendships and and Mm -hmm. um, different kinds of community opportunities come up because they were willing to go into a place or a space or a gathering that they were completely uncomfortable in right at this point in time, Nina and I shifted topics in our conversation, so this might be a good place to end this episode. But before I sign off, I just want to review a few of the key takeaways from our discussion. It seems that when Nina thinks about equity, she thinks a lot about cultural perspectives and norms and how they affect how we relate to one another. So, for Nina, working towards equity is very much a matter of developing skills to better understand and relate to one another across cultural differences, and she emphasizes development of humility and strategies for observing and listening. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, we'll return to my conversation with Nina and learn a bit about how she thinks about the relationship between equity and sustainability and what she thinks that rural communities and institutions of higher learning need to do to persist and flourish in a world of changing economic and social conditions. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.